Ralph was uh, driving home one evening when he realized that it was his daughter's birthday and he had not yet purchased a gift to bring home for her birthday. And so he went to the local mall on the way home and went into a toy store. And while he was rummaging around there, he looked at all of the display of the numerous Barbie dolls that were there. And while he was standing there sort of mesmerized and astonished by the Barbie dolls that he saw and how many there were, a young lady came, an attendant came up and said, may I help you? He said, well, how much are these Barbie dolls? The lady manager replied, which one? We have Barbie goes to the gym, 1995. Barbie goes to the ball, 1995. Barbie goes shopping for 1995. Barbie goes to the beach for 1995. And divorce Barbie for 375 bucks. <laughs> Ralph asked, surprised, well, tell me why the divorce Barbie is $375 when all the others are 1995. To which she then replied, well, divorce Barbie comes with Ken's car, Ken's house, Ken's boat, Ken's dog, Ken's cat, and Ken's furniture. <laughs> you know, the reality is that divorce is not a laughing matter, is it? But we laugh at it. We. I put myself in the same category. And I think the reason we do that is because divorce is a painful thing. And sometimes in order to handle or to, to manage painful circumstances, we have a tendency to mock them or to laugh at them or to poke fun at them. It sort of eases the pain, doesn't it? And I would dare to say that probably every family in here, an extended family, every family in here has been impacted by divorce at one time or another. And as a result of that reality, because in the culture that we live in, 50% of, of marriages end a divorce. That's five out of 10 today end a divorce. You can go on the internet today and, and type in under your search engine, <laughs> divorce jokes. And you will find tens, if not tens of thousands of jokes like I did. Now, some you can pick and say and share and some you better not. But there are numerous. And there, there's also a danger, I think, when we come to a time like this, when we're in a spiritual family on a Sunday morning and talk about this very important subject because there, there are two dangers. There are, are, are two, two levels that I think we, we're in danger of, of taking one side or the other because the reality is that most of us in here are, are creatures of extremism. We, we very rarely are balanced in our approach to many things, if not most things. And, and the first danger is to become very legalistic. And there's some of us in here who are very legalistic. We have been married for a number of years, and we are very legalistic in what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. And we hold up the banner, and we're very judgmental, and we're very condescending, if not condemning of those who have not lived up to the standard that we have lived up to and to the, what we believe to be the letter of the law. And so we pound our fists, and we raise our hands, and we shout with our voices, this is what marriage is. And if you don't abide by this standard or this quality of marriage and therefore you're just subpar and 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 you're not up with the rest of us there's that danger isn't there called the legalistic approach but there's also i think the liberal approach where we we become so liberal in our approach to marriage that that it doesn't really matter much if you're 
if you're divorced tonight, and there are people who are married and divorced multiple, multiple times, and they divorce their spouse for a number or a myriad of a very unconventional or very minute reasons, because to be honest with, with you, they just don't make me happy anymore. They don't make me feel that tingling feeling that I once felt when I first married them. Or maybe they don't look like they used to look like. Or maybe there's someone else that appeases my tastes and likes and interests more than the person I'm married to. Or this person is more flawed than I had imagined. You know, they're not the same person. I married, uh, you know, this this person. And and after the honeymoon, they they turned into somebody completely different. And I I didn't bargain for all of this because the reality is that marriage is hard, isn't it? I said, marriage is hard, isn't it? Okay. Let me try that again. Marriage is hard, isn't it? Okay. There's some more, more excitable about that than others. I have some counseling options over here, you know, if you know what you get. And God has a lot to say about marriage and divorce. He has really more to say about marriage than he does about divorce. Because the divine design for God is that two people become married for life. And so as a result of that, he says more about the relational aspect of two people living together for the rest of their lives rather than he does about divorce. And there's a danger also that I want to mention before we go into our study. And it's the danger that we're going to find current in the culture of Jesus that I'm convinced is, is, is also in the culture today. There's a culture inside of the church of God or the church of Christ Then it was the church of God. Today it's the church of Christ. In the Old Testament practice, they they were legalists in one sense, but they were liberal in another. They were trying to keep their feet sort of in both worlds. They believed that divorce was not God's divine design, but they they had allowed so many hoops that people could jump through. I mean, any number of, of, of excuses or reasons that were permissible for divorce. It was, it was to where you could just stand on the street corner and say, I divorce you and hand, you, hand your, your, your spouse, your, your wife, a certificate of divorce, and that was it for any reason. Because after all, my happiness is, is really what is of most valuable and most important to me. And we have that in our culture today. And we do have it somewhat in the church because God meant for me to be happy. And when I'm not happy, then I'm going to do what I need to do or what is necessary to do in order to make me happy. And yes, even if I have to redefine what God says makes me happy in order to make me happy, to suit my will rather than his will, then I will redefine it, I will renegotiate it, I will reinterpret it, I will then practice that, that false application so that I can then justify the choices that I've made for my own personal happiness. And here we have then this interesting aspect about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount, in these these attitudes of the heart. And Jesus is going to convey to us this whole concept that divorce is an attitude of the heart. It's a heart problem. 
And what he's talking about here, I think, in this text and a few others that we're going to read, is that in the attitude of the hardness of the heart, and that it's because of the hardness of the heart that divorce becomes prevalent between two people and becomes not only an option, but the option to take. They're hard in their heart. In other words, they have lost their sensitivity to the word and to the will, if not the spirit of Christ. And as a result of that, they have become so hard-hearted toward each other and toward God that it severs the relationship, it undoes the bond or the bind that God has brought them together, and they would rather choose to disobey God rather than to obey God at the expense or for the expense of their own happiness. So I think Jesus is saying here that the attitude that needs fine-tuning is the heart that has grown hard and that has stopped being sensitive to what God desires for his people for what Christ desires for his disciples. So let's take a look at the text in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 31. Only two verses today in this fine-tuning of the attitude of the heart called hardness, which to correct the hardness of the heart is then grow sensitive or to have a sensitivity toward the spirit of the Lord and the word of God and the will of God. Let's, let's talk about the current attitude. Let's sort of capture that one more time as Jesus does in the text in verse 31. He says, it was also said. It was also said. This is now the fourth time that we've looked at this. And in the order of things, this is really the third because we had to jump out on Children's Day and sort of change the order a little bit because it's hard to talk about subject of lust and those kinds of things on Children's Day. So we changed the order a little bit. But this is the fourth time now that we see Jesus talking about you've heard it said. And so he says, you have also heard that it was said. In other words, there's a number of things that they had heard before. Now take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. It's not on the screen. Genesis chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. I want us to look at what was said originally by God in the framework of marriage, especially the relationship between a man and a woman. How did God design marriage? What was his original intent? It's interesting to go all the way back to Genesis, that ancient book that most of us rarely if on a few occasions ever turned to to ever read. But here we see God laying out this beautiful design for marriage. Beginning with verse 18, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, this is God speaking, It is not good for the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And all the men said, Amen. Come on, guys, you better say that a little bit better. And all the men said, Amen. your wife is listening. Okay? She is to be your helpmate, your companion, your partner, your, not your sidekick, but your partner. Okay? If you go back to Genesis 1, you will see that God put both man and woman to rule over the garden. So, it's not a relationship that often we think about, and I don't have time to go there now, but the judge wants you to let you know that, guys, you better be careful how you define this relationship between you and your spouse. Make sure it's the biblical thing. Now jump down to verse 21. After we see two verses where God reminds us once again that it was Adam who named all 
the creation and all the animals and all the beasts that he had created. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Notice in the text here, God created the woman out of man and then presented the woman to the man. He created her. He created her the same way, well, let me rephrase that, with the same stuff that he created man in many regards. You're going to see why I'm going to say that in a minute. I don't have time to explain, but look at now verse 23. Then the man said, this is it. This at least, notice what he says. Notice, notice his recognition in this consummation of this relationship, this matrimony, this marriage. Notice Adam's recognition. This at least is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, he recognizes that Eve is made out of the very same stuff that he's made up. She has a heart, she has a mind, she has emotions, she has arms and legs, she has flesh, she has hair, she is made out of the same substance. They share the same distinction in God's creation because God created beasts and then he created man. We are not animals, we are a different, distinct determination of God's creation. We are above animals. Man is not an animal, and we have been created distinctly different. And he looks at, at, at Eve, and he goes, whoa, man. You got it? We are created out of the same stuff. Not exactly alike, praise God, but out of the same stuff. There's an attraction there, which is very natural. I was talking to somebody the other day with a teenage son, and they were... We got talking about how he's attracted to, to ladies, and I said, be thankful today for that. That's a normal thing. Don't squelch that, okay? Contain it, but don't squelch it. But notice now, Adam has quit speaking, and notice this verse, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife don't skip this, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. There is a bond that happens at marriage that is non-negotiable, that is inseparable, that is eternal. God intended in his design for marriage to be a bond that is inseparable, indivisible. One flesh. One in heart, one in emotion, one in spirit, one in spirituality, one in faith, one physically, one person when there are two. Not two, but one. Always impresses me when we have a wedding and there's, there's candles and they take two candles and they light one. And I usually say, you know, it's your choice. You can leave them lit or you can blow your individual ones out and leave the single one lit. When you blow your individual ones out, that means the two are dying to yourself and you're becoming one. If you want to leave them lit, that's indicating that we're two separate people, individuals, but we're still one. And then they make the choice. Well, under God's design, the two have become one. It's not really our choice. We're bonded. There's a glue. And so that's, that's man's 
That, that, that's man's prerogative then to embrace God's design or not to embrace God's design because that is God's design. But what we find in the practice of the Old Testament church, the Old Testament church was something completely different because of the hardness of their hearts, because the hardness of man's heart, because of his depravity, his carnality. Notice what happens. Turn to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24. You see, God gave an out to this bond called marriage. He allows individuals who are married to divorce. Now, there's this whole thing, and we don't have time to talk about it, between God's perfect will and his permissive will, and we could go back and forth all day long and talk about permissive will and, and perfect will. This was his perfect will, but yes, this pers- permissive will. I don't believe there's a permissive will. I think there is a perfect will and an imperfect obedience. <laughs> I don't believe in a permissive will thing. So God willed that divorce could take place because of the hardness of man's heart. Notice in verse 24, 1, when a man takes a wife, this is Moses' law, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no, he finds, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Now, we could go on and read the rest of of chapter 24, but this is going to make my point. Notice the words, if then she finds no favor in his eyes. What does that mean, no favor in his eyes? There's no qualification here. She just simply finds no favor. If one day he wakes up and says, I don't find favor with you anymore for whatever reason. All he has to do is he has to give her a a certificate of divorce. Notice it says he has found some indecency in her. There was a huge debate, not only in the Old Testament practice, but also in the day of Jesus, in the contemporary culture of Jesus' day. What does that mean if he finds some indecency in her? And there were two schools of thought. There was a Pharisee called Hillel, who Hillel was a guy who believed that you could divorce someone for any reason. For any reason. She burnt your breakfast that morning. You could divorce her. Wow. Imagine that. You were walking down the street and saw someone more attractive than your spouse. You could divorce your spouse to marry her. For any reason, any time, if she were to make you unhappy, you could divorce that person and remarry. She has not found favor in your eyes for whatever reason. There was this liberalism that was going on in Jesus' day that was just phenomenal. And you could divorce for any cause. A man could divorce. A woman had to abandon her husband, but the man, for any reason, any reason, if you were of the school of thought, could divorce your spouse for any reason. But notice there's also a guy named Shammai, and his school of thought was there, there are grounds for divorce, but the only grounds there are for divorce, there's only one, and that's adultery. Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus has just preceded this passage by helping us understand that lust is the same as adultery? Think about that. He talks about lust, and then he goes into divorce and marriage, and next Sunday he's going to go into covenant relationships, keeping your word, which is another heart attitude. 
And he prefaces this whole subject of divorce with, if you have lusted, you are guilty of adultery. So in essence, as we concluded last week, every one of us in here are adulterers. We may not have committed the act of adultery, but we have lusted in our hearts emotionally or mentally. And as a result of that, we are adulterers. And as adulterers, the law said we were to be stoned. Well, I've never committed the act of adultery. No, but you've done it in your heart. Remember, it's a heart problem. And so the reality is that he's saying here that the only cause for divorce is adultery. Now imagine that. How do you, how do you, well, do we get legalistic or do we get liberal? How do we work on that today? How does that convey to the church today and our practice? Uh, I, I almost didn't use this when I'm using it anyway. Some of you on Facebook put some things on there that I would never put on my Facebook. But uh, there's a thing on there about a lady named Victoria. Anybody know what I'm talking about? A lady who's a co-pastor with her husband down in Houston, Texas. And uh, this is what she said, and I quote, When we obey God, we're not doing it for God. That's one way to look at it. We are doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy this morning. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen? Let's open our hearts to him today. What does that sound like to you that the church today has become? Whatever it takes to make me happy is the church I want to go to because I want to be happy. And I want to hear things that are going to make me happy. And I want to hear somebody going to speak into my life that's going to say, I am to be happy. God says I deserve to be happy. God wants me to be happy. So anything that I need in order to make myself happy, then by golly, that's what I want to hear. Now, some say that five out of ten marriages end a divorce. And the fact that you, you have this statistic that's hard to argue that that. Some say 35% and some say at least 50% of marriages in the church today end a divorce. So the question I have to ask you is this. Is there a distinctive difference in the way the church sees marriage and the world sees marriage? We all deserve to be happy, right? And God takes pleasure in our happiness, right? So therefore, everything we do, we should do for our happiness, right? Wrong? Tell that to the Christians that are dying as martyrs in, in, in remote parts of the world today, that, that God wants you to be happy. While they're being beaten, while they're being physically assaulted and raped and murdered for their Christianity. God want, that, that message doesn't work anywhere but the U.S. of A., to a bunch of egotistical, self-centered, 
holier-than-thou, self-righteous people that will even redefine what God says in order to justify my choices because God wants me to be happy. I think God does take pleasure in our happiness. But God does not work in our lives just so that we can be happy people because there are some times that carrying the cross is not going to be happy. God talks more about joy than he does happiness. And I wish we had time to talk about that, but we don't. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is about happenstance. Joy is about a fruit of the Spirit. And you can be joyful in the fruit of the Spirit even though your circumstances are not what they should be. Now, I know this is a touchy subject because in churches today, there are many of us who have made the choice to divorce, and some of that's not been our own choice, and some of it has been our own choice. But the reality is, at the bottom line, at that decision, I think what leads us to that decision, really, if we're honest, is a hard heart. We're just not sensitive to the Word and to the will and to the Spirit of Christ who gives us very specific commands in both 1 Corinthians and Ephesians how we ought to treat our spouses. Because after all, we are fleshly, we are carnal, we are sinful. But yet, what I'm trying to help us realize is, let's don't redefine a high view of, of, of marriage in order to justify our decision to divorce. Continue to maintain a high level of marriage and uphold the standard of God and recognize your humanity, your carnality, and your fleshliness and recognize your choice. I've made the choice to do this, but I still view marriage in a high view. I still elevate it, and I still think that's the standard that that God wants for his people. It's interesting, and then he talks about then this important aspect about then this corrective adjustment that he makes. Let's take a look at the next verse, and and just stay with me. I know this is, for some of us, this is painful. I get it, but but just just hang in there. We're we're not through yet. Let's, let's, Let's look at the corrective adjustment that Jesus gives. Notice in verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Oh, there's an out. Jesus gives a qualification here for divorce. If there is marital unfaithfulness, if there is infidelity, if there is adultery in a marriage, then you can divorce. And some would say that the scriptures then say that because of that infidelity, because of that adultery, then you're allowed to remarry again without any of the other consequences that, that scriptures seem to indicate. Well, how do we, how do we talk about all of it. What if, what if someone, here's the question, and I'm talking off the cuff here, but let's say someone is, is living with an abusive spouse who, who beats them. I mean, I've, I've had these in, in 35 years of ministry. People come into my office and I'm being beaten. My life is being threatened. My children are at risk themselves. My child is being sexually abused by my spouse. You see, these are modern-day problems that we have today as pastors in churches. Things that, that, that sometimes membership grovels with on a daily, you know, deals with on a daily basis. And the, the world that we live in is messy. And, and I think here Jesus is saying there are grounds, there are reasons when 
then, then divorce is optional, that divorce might be the best choice. I've never counseled for divorce, but I have counseled people to separate for time because there's a risk to the other partner or there's something that's damaging to, to the child or to the family itself. The object, I think, and the idea here is that there should always be an attempt of reconciliation, but there are times when reconciliation is not possible, and that's, that's a reality today because of our humanity and because of our carnality and because of our hardness of heart. Sometimes we're just not responsive to the Spirit and obedient to the Word. That's a reality. Well, how can you say that? Well, you've done that this week in other areas of your life. Why do we find it so obscure and so hard to accept that people would have that in their marriages as well? Because sometimes marriage partners don't treat the other partner as they should. Do they? And so there's disobedience. And there's this hardness of heart. But notice he says, makes her commit adultery. That word makes is an interesting word. It's a word that means, it doesn't mean that you force them but it means that you give them an opportunity then to then commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the purpose that Jesus is saying here, I believe, is, is that, that divorce is a hard issue. That's what he's saying. It's a hard issue because remember that adultery carried with it the consequences of stoning, of death. For the reason why Joseph didn't... didn't blow the whistle on Mary because she was pregnant out of wedlock. He was afraid that she would be killed for that. It's still a, a common practice. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 19 and sort of, sort of understand, I think, the whole context of what Jesus is saying because it's important to take all of Jesus' words, not just these words, and try to figure out exactly what he is trying to say. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Jesus is, is on his way, he's, he's on a trip, and he's headed in the direction that he wants to go, and all of a sudden he's interrupted. There's a confrontation in verse 3, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Can we divorce for any reason? What's, what's the boundary here? What's, what's in bounds and what's out of bounds? What is it? Can we divorce for any cause? Now notice now Jesus gives them a corroboration. He gives them some evidence now to support what he is saying and what he has always said in verse 4. He answered them and said, Have you not read that he, meaning God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, There is a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Where did we just read that? Genesis. Jesus is quoting the word. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Notice he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now notice the confusion on the part of the guys who were there listening to the response. They say to him, why then did Moses command, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Then why did God say through Moses to give a certificate of divorce? What's up with that? We're confused. Help us out. Is the word inconsistent? Well, notice now in verse 8. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart. You need to underline that. 
Because of your hardness of heart, Moses, through the Spirit, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. But because of the hardness of your hearts, God now has given permission for the bonding to sever and for divorce then to happen. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's his clarification. Now notice this incredible confession. It's a beautiful confession from the, from the disciples who are listening. Then the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. What are they asking? Hey, Jesus... If, if marriage is that hard, and, and, and if I'm prone to be hard-hearted, rebellious, unbending, unyielding, temperamental, hard-headed, egotistical, self-centered, and all of those things that come with the flesh and my carnality, then, then it's better than for me not to be put in that position to marry someone because then I won't, be, I won't have all that conflict. It's better than just to, to avoid the whole thing. Well, was that God's design? No, because without man and woman marrying, there would be no procreation. There would be no, we would not be here. <laughs> Is that the choice? No. Notice what Jesus says. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Jesus is saying that we need God-given power in order to stay committed in the marriage relationship. You don't have the power to do it on your own. You don't have the power to do it on your own. There was a man who came down the stairs and he sat at the table in the, the breakfast nook there we had sat for decades. And he picked up his paper and he started reading it and while he was reading it, he noticed the date on the paper, and all of a sudden it dawned him, this is my 60th anniversary. I have completely fought, forgot about it. I don't have a present. I'm in deep trouble. Can anybody relate to that? And uh, so he looks over the paper, and he sees his wife, and he's noticing her sitting at the table next to him drinking her coffee and he sees her lovely face and thinks about all those wonderful memories of all those 60 plus years they've been together and their 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 wedding day and their family and God's blessings and he just leans over and he simply says honey I love you she puts down her coffee cup and she leans over to him and said that's nothing I'm tired of you too obviously they need hearing aids Sometimes marriage is exhausting. It's like the couple that had been married for 70 years and they were being interviewed by the local newspaper and the young man came, a very, very young man, and he was trying to find out what was the secret of being married so long. And he asked him, so, so what's your secret? He's interviewing the husband and he said, long walks. He said, long walks? Man, that's the secret of your long time marriage? He said, yeah, long walks. He said, I take them in the morning and she takes them in the evening. God knows that people are hard-hearted and we have a heart problem. 
and that sometimes marriages have strains and stresses. That's why he gives us lots of advice in the New Testament about how to have not a happy marriage, but the right kind of marriage. That over time, when practiced, can become a reality. I can tell you after 35 plus years of being married, I think it's been that long, I'm in trouble now, that the smaller things when we started off that were significant 35 years later really don't mean much at all. You know what I'm talking about, people? You know what I'm talking about? It's amazing how your perspective changes. And, and in those seasons of marriage, those conflicts that, that, you know, you're one way and she's one way, and those things that brought conflict then become celebrations because you realize that your insufficiencies are her sufficiencies and your sufficiencies are her insufficiencies. And then that oneness that you're looking for becomes a reality only after decades of being married. And for those of you who are young married, hang on. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Because those things that you think are really, really important and you're fighting for right now, I guarantee you in 20 years, they won't mean a hill of beans in your life anymore. They won't. And those irritants that you see in your spouse that really irritate you, you'll realize after decades of marriage, you'll be thankful they're that way because they're that way because they complement what you don't have. And the things that you have will complement what she doesn't have. And the end result is you'll find yourself becoming one in the Lord. And there are times when you do need to take long walks. You say that again? There are times you need to take long walks. But when you take a walk, you take a walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Because if you take a long walk in the spirit away from your spouse, you're going to find yourself in areas of temptation and thoughts and emotions and places they shouldn't go to. Take long walks in the spirit of Christ, and as you dwell in the spirit of Christ, the fruit of the spirit will become a reality, and that will impact your relationship with your spouse, and it will actually seal the bond, not break the bond that God intends for you to have. For those of us who are here this morning and say, you know, that's a pretty tough view on marriage, it is. We should have and we should elevate a high view of marriage because that's God's standard, but yet there are many of us, and the reality is we have not lived up to that standard, and we've made the choice to, to, and we're divorced and remarried. What does that mean for us? Grace. Since when did God's grace never become sufficient enough? Now, let's not get too, 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 too liberal over here and say, well, you can divorce for any reason. Let's hold a high view of marriage and understand that in a relationship, God wants the husband and wife to be sealed, to be bonded, to be one in the Lord and never to depart. But the reality is because of the hardness of our hearts, let's confess we were hard-hearted. We didn't obey the Lord. We didn't do what was right. And we sinned. And God's grace is sufficient to cover every and any sin we've ever committed. And if God's grace is never sufficient, then we're in trouble. Every one of us in here is in trouble. And if you're divorced, you're not a second-class Christian citizen. There are consequences to divorce, and there are circumstances that happen in people's lives because of that that, that are irreversible. That's true. 
But yet God's mercy and God's grace is more than sufficient. And for those of us today who are in hurtful marriages and know people who are, there's always hope. I know that there may be some in here this morning who are, who are at their wits' end. They've been ignored for a long time. They have, they have been unappreciated for a long time. They, 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 just, they, they, they are just empty. They are lost, and you may be confused, and you'd be wondering, is there hope for me, and is there hope for my marriage? And the answer is yes, and it's here, and it's in Christ, and it's in his spirit. And I know people today who are living under very difficult circumstances and who are hanging on by a thread, and that thread is hope. A hope that one day their spouse will wake up and they will recognize the error of their ways. And Paul said in Corinthians that a believing spouse who stays married to an unbelieving spouse can eventually win that spouse over to the Lord. It can happen. For my God and your God and our God can do great things. How do you know that? Well, did you know I wasn't perfect? Did you know living with me has not been easy? It's better now. But it hasn't been easy. How can you say that? I'm a human being. And so are you. Did you know being married to you is not easy? Let me say that again. Being married to you is not easy. Turn to your spouse and say, being married to me is not easy. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I look back now. I said, you got it right, bub. You ain't easy to live with. But ladies, sometimes it's not easy to be married to you either. Right? (laughs) Let's hold a high view of marriage. And let's recognize that when there's a problem between two people in a relationship, it's usually because there's a hardness of heart. And then we just fine-tune that hardness and become more sensitive to the Spirit of the Lord and the will of the Lord and the Word of the Lord. There's no relationship that's irreversible or unreconcilable. Because I'm convinced how we treat our spouses, men, affects how we relate to the Lord. Let's make our marriages the best they can be. Let's pray.
Buenos días, una vez más estamos aquí delante de ustedes. Good morning to all, once more we're in front of you. Y para nosotros, uh, el Ministerio Hispano es una bendición que sean testigos uh, y también la Iglesia Americana sea testigo de este maravilloso uh, evento o ordenanza. Well, it's a great privilege you guys be a witness to this great uh, uh, occasion to be able to baptize four young kids. Uh, it's a great privilege for us as a Hispanic mission and also for you guys being a witness to this uh, event. Uh, una de las cosas y bonitas, los lo muchachitos que vamos a bautizar el día de hoy. One of the beautiful uh, things about these young kids that we're about to baptize today. Uh, han crecido um, en la educación de la iglesia americana. They have grown in, in education. Their religious education is based on uh, American culture. Uh, Damos gracias a Dios por esta oportunidad de, de tenerlos. But we give thanks to God for this uh, opportunity to have them. Okay. Elias. Elias is going to be baptized first. Elías creo que es el más pequeño que vamos a bautizar hoy. I think Elias is the youngest one that we're going to baptize today. Y es uno es una emoción muy grande porque It's a very big emotion for me. Um, es nuestro último hijo. It's our last kid. Y es una oportunidad que obedezca al Señor a través del bautismo. It is a great opportunity for him to going to uh, obey God in baptism. Elías, has aceptado Jesús en tu corazón? Has accepted Jesus in your heart? Yes. Yes. Okay. De Bueno, por la declaración que tú has hecho delante de la iglesia de Emanuel y con la autoridad que, que Dios me ha dado, yo te bautizo en el nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo. una oportunidad también muy bonita bautizar a Nathan. Nathan, tú has aceptado a Jesús en tu corazón. Okay. Por la declaración que tú has hecho y con la autoridad que la Iglesia de Manuel me ha dado y también la autoridad que he recibido de Dios, yo te bautizo en el nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo. Brian. Brian. ¿Tú has aceptado a Jesús en tu corazón? You have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Yes, okay. Por la declaración que Brian ha hecho y, y por la autoridad que he recibido del Señor. And by the authority given to me by God. 
eh, y la, la autoridad que he recibido de la iglesia Manuel. Yo te bautizo en el nombre del Padre, del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo. Jonathan. Bueno, es un placer una vez más este, tener aquí a Jonathan. A Jonathan, ¿tú has aceptado a Jesús en tu corazón? Sí. Muy bien, con la declaración que Jonathan ha hecho delante de ustedes y con la autoridad que Dios me ha dado y la autoridad que he recibido de la iglesia Manuel yo te bautizo en el nombre del Padre del Hijo y del Espíritu Santo Thank you. Thank you so much.